It's Tuesday, January 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Democratic field of those running for president in 2020 has just added another contender. Senator Kamala Harris was the former attorney general for California, San Francisco district attorney, and has been in the Senate for two years now. Chris Catalago, national reporter for Politico, joins us to discuss her campaign launch and what could be both a strength and a weakness, her prosecutorial career. Next, the next summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un will be sometime in February. And while many have said that North Korea has not been very forthcoming in its disclosure of missile sites or even efforts to denuclearize, a new report says that researchers have discovered a secret ballistic missile base that was previously undisclosed, and there could be as many as 20. Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios, joins us to discuss the report. Finally, there is a new four-legged robot dog that thanks to artificial intelligence can run faster, operate with more efficiency, and even get back up after it's been kicked down. But this dog is special. It not only learned with AI, but through computer simulations on a desktop, learning 1,000 times faster than the real world. Robert Verger, assistant tech editor for Popular Science, joins us for Animal, the robot dog. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The future of our country depends on you and millions of others lifting our voices to fight for our American values. That's why I'm running for president of the United States. I'm running to lift those voices. Joining us now is Chris Catalago, national political reporter for Politico. The Democratic field of contenders for president in 2020 is starting to grow. One of the people that was not unexpected, but everybody was waiting for it to happen, was that of Kamala Harris. She has thrown her hat in the ring for 2020. She went on to Good Morning America. She released a video talking about what her new slogan is going to be for the people. Chris, tell us a little bit about the campaign launch. Kamala Harris had a soft launch that began probably a couple weeks ago, and it was really where she was able to tour the country, at least the uh, East Coast and the West Coast, and make a number of media stops, including uh, Colbert, a number of the morning shows like The View, and talk about her book, which was really sort of a veiled chance for her to, to get into her own story and her biography. I think we sometimes forget that some of these people get into the U.S. Senate with campaigns, hers in 2016, not particularly competitive. So not a lot of people really knew much about her backstory. Right. And so this chance with the book was it was a, was a chance to do that. Now, that kind of flowed, as you mentioned, directly into the announcement, which was also bio-heavy. She did an interview on Good Morning America and then released a video, which was basically teasing her big first speech, which is going to be Sunday in Oakland. And that's where she's really going to kind of talk about why she's running, the vision for the campaign. And we'll start to hear some of those things. Some of the meat on the bone will start then. It's all about name recognition and, you know, people that aren't familiar with her outside of the circles, whether be in California or, you know, people that are really plugged into what's going on in the Senate, it's time to build that name recognition. It's time to build her profile in that way. Tell us a little bit about some of the stuff she's already made decisions on. I know she's rejecting corporate PAC money, super PAC stuff, which is going to be popular with a lot of the uh, candidates. Yeah, that's become sort of an early litmus test in the race is, will you reject corporate PAC money and also sort of an affiliated super PAC? We've seen supporters of Cory Booker come forward and say that they want to start a super PAC. Pretty much everyone else has sort of denounced it early. And that's a way to signal to your own supporters that you don't want them to come in and start the super PAC and 
and start raising money in your name because it's going to be a political liability for you. And and so I think when you denounce it, obviously it doesn't stop anyone from coming in and, and starting a super PAC, but without your sort of signaled support as the candidate, they don't tend to get much credibility. And so they don't tend to raise a lot of money unless it's just a really rich person who likes you a lot and, and starts one on their own. So she's certainly done the denouncing, as has Kirsten Gillibrand. This was really something that Elizabeth Warren, who announced her campaign on New Year's Eve, started and called on all the other candidates to do. How is she going to be positioning the campaign? Uh, on the Democratic side, there's going to be a lot of similarities in positions, and it's really going to be about the person and then drilling down into their past and seeing what's going on. She's already had a few moments in the Senate where she's shown to be aggressive, that prosecutorial stance, one of the more famous ones when she was trying to grill former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and uh, they were trying to cut her mic off because she was being too tough. She wasn't letting him answer some questions. So she's already made a couple of standout moments there on TV. I think also when she was grilling Brett Kavanaugh, things like that. So how is she going to position her campaign with regards to the president? She's tried to build this image in the Senate as someone who doesn't use the, you know, five minutes of questioning time to make a lofty speech. You know, you have to see these senators and they ask one or two questions and they use the rest of the time to sort of filibuster and make their own point. She's tried to pack in as many questions as she can in that time, sort of like you would in a courtroom. And I think that's what she's going to try to project in the campaign is someone who wants to get to the facts, get down to the business of the country. And that's going to be her brand in, in the field. Obviously, on things like immigration, some of the big issues issues that are out there, income inequality, there's not going to be a huge difference between some of these candidates. And so when you look at her record, she spent a career in law enforcement. She was a line prosecutor in Alameda County and then moved to San Francisco, where she became the district attorney and then the state attorney general. So that's a lot of years far prior to the Black Lives Matter movement for her to push for longer sentences, for her to not necessarily take active positions on statewide sentencing reform. And California had famous Prop 47, which made a lot of changes to state law. Also, early drug crime sentences. They used to be a lot longer than uh, people are pushing for now. And so her opponents will certainly pick over that aspect of her record. She basically points to how she was sort of an early leader, certainly not as out front as some prosecutors are today, but an early leader in calling for smarter solutions. She had an anti-recidivism program, which was in San Francisco, and, and she moved it statewide to Los Angeles. So there are things she'll be able to highlight as well. She's also come out for marijuana legalization. Some of the positions that she's been criticized for more recently, she's come out for. California, where she's coming from, they moved up their primary system a lot earlier than it used to be. So there's a chance there for her to get a lot of delegates early and kind of get some momentum as the whole process moves along. So it's going to be interesting how her campaign really develops. That's totally true. I think the timing she believes and her campaign believes works in her favor. You have the first few early states, including Nevada, and then you go to South Carolina, where she's going to play very heavily, especially among African-American voters, among women. She's going to be going there on Friday, her earliest campaign stop. And then you have Super Tuesday in California, where while she's not super well-known nationally yet, she's certainly better known in California. The other thing to remember about her record and being a prosecutor is such a major part of her life. It's been her job for basically decades that she kind of has to run on that issue. Right. There's nothing she can say. She can't run away from it. It's, it's basically something she's done her entire life. So she has to find a way to talk about it in a way that appeals to progressives in the Democratic Party or her campaign's not going to go very far. Chris Catalago, national political reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Thank you.
while the president has started a promising dialogue with Chairman Kim. We still await concrete steps by North Korea to dismantle the nuclear weapons that threaten our people and our allies in the region. Joining us now is Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios. Let's talk about North Korea. Since last June, when the president met with Kim Jong-un, the news has kind of been up and down all over the place. The president has declared a win with our relations with them because there's been no more tests or missile launches, nuclear tests or missile launches. It's kind of interesting what's happened there. September 2017, since the last missile launch and nuclear tests a month later than that. But right now, what a lot of people said that North Korea has really moved on from its research and development phase onto mass production. That's why there aren't these big missile launches, these tests anymore. And that leads us into this new report that we just came out with where they found an undisclosed missile site and they say they could be 19 more missile sites of this kind. What do we know about this report? This new report, which was sponsored by the Center for Strategic of International Studies, is exactly what you said. It reported that they discovered a secret ballistic missile base that's basically being used for operational test development and training in North Korea. And what that means is that they're moving on to more in-depth training on how like different guards and different security advisors based on North Korea is uh, going to be using these sites. And why that matters is the group estimates that North Korea could have as many as 20 undisclosed missile sites. And looking ahead to foreign policy and what we've discovered over the past year between our relationship with North Korea is that President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un are going to have another nuclear summit within the next month or so. And even though Washington has not necessarily made substantial progress on denuclearization since the summit last summer, it's going to show how much words are going to be involved. So as long as the North Korean leader promises things based on things that we already acknowledge, like existing missile sites, that's essentially where it's going to be, where it's like, ah, you know, we have undisclosed missile sites and they're not necessarily going to take into account those are part of our agreement between the two countries. This report is very cautionary. So it's urging the U.S. government to take into account the sites that we may not necessarily know about and that Korea doesn't, North Korea does not want us to know about. Some of the authors are talking about how when we are negotiating with this country, we need to make sure that we understand that they might not be telling us the whole picture. And that could be pretty embarrassing for the United States, especially since we have been caught in kind of a word game with King John Il in the past. There's going to be a lot of pressure on this new summit to have some type of concrete deal where they can come to consensus on the wording of this stuff. But a lot of people since the last time have said you can't trust them. They're playing a game and there's no way in hell that North Korea is going to give up their nuclear arsenal. Everyone is going to be looking at President Trump in this new summit that's going to be happening. You know, the North Korean leader has already talked to China, has already have a plan in place based on our previous reporting. And when Donald Trump talks to Kim Jong-un next month, it's going to be very interesting if they're going to roll out this red carpet, shake hands, very promotional (laughs) talk of diplomacy. But as far as that goes, we won't know until it happens. But I know a lot of national security and foreign officials that we have are very weary of what's going to happen here and the pressure that is on the United States to help move this along. A lot of people are nervous about the meetings that the president has with these world leaders. They say that they want to get the president in a one-on-one interaction where they can come to an offhand agreement, you know, something impulsive that the president would agree to 
to try to nail down a deal. And this is kind of what they're shooting for. But as you said, we won't know until the summit actually happens. But these are just a lot of the concerns about the meetings that the president has with these uh, world leaders that we can't necessarily trust. To circle back to the news peg, which is the report that came out, we should really take caution on what that report is saying, which is that these sites are especially important to that we don't know about them, right? The only point for this summit to have a possible and successful outcome is that we have something on paper. And the previous summit did not give us that. That's one of the cautionary analyzations that this report gave us. Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Let's say they wanted it to run faster than it could run before. They use machine learning and AI and let the robot kind of figure out in a simulator on a desktop how to do those things and then transfer those skills or that learning back into the robot. So it's almost like in the Matrix when Neo (laughs) downloads those instructions about how to fly a helicopter. Joining us now is Rob Verger, assistant tech editor for Popular Science. We're going to be talking about artificial intelligence and this four-legged robot. His name is uh, Animal, but it's spelled A-N-Y-M-A-L. It's part of a company called Anything, and it's uh, from a company in Switzerland. You might have seen a robot similar to it. It's uh, made by Boston Dynamics called Spot Mini. It's like a little robot looks kind of like a dog, has four little legs on it. If anybody's ever seen Black Mirror, it's one of my favorite shows. There is an episode called Metalhead where they have these little assassin robot dogs. It kind of looks like that. But this dog right now, it's in the early stages of teaching it how to move around and work in real world environments. There's videos where they kick the dog over and he can get back on its uh, legs on its own. Tell us a little bit about that and how they teach it to do all these cool things. This robot is called Animal. And it weighs about 73 pounds, and researchers in Switzerland at a place called the Robotic Systems Laboratory have programmed it to do these things. And they really did it through a combination of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and time in a simulator. And the result is that this robot dog could do everything that they wanted it to do, but just better after the artificial intelligence training kind of kicked in. So let's say they wanted it to run faster than it could run before. They use machine learning and AI and let the robot kind of figure out in a simulator on a desktop how to do those things. And then transferred those skills or that learning back into the robot. So it's almost like in the Matrix when Neo (laughs) downloads those instructions about how to fly a helicopter. It's like that happened with the robot dog. Tell us a little bit about that simulation learning, because that's one of the important parts uh, with the artificial intelligence. Usually you have to manually teach it a set of rules. This happens, then this is how you would react to it. But the simulation learning makes it so much faster. As you said, they don't have to do the real world actions on it, it all happens on the computer and then they just download it into the little robot dog's brain. Exactly. If you wanted to program, let's say a robot dog, how to get up after it's been kicked over and it's kind of on the ground and its limbs are everywhere and its joints are in, uh, you know, they could be in a thousand different positions to program it, how to get back up after that, you know, first do this, then do that in a kind of traditional kind of old school programming approach, that would be very difficult. And they say that before the AI training, the dog couldn't get up in situations like that. But after the AI training, when it was learning how to do that stuff in simulation. And the simulation, by the way, 
way is around a thousand times faster than the real world. After I had learned how to do all that in simulation and they transferred the skills back into the actual physical robot, then it could get up something like 98 or even 100% of the time. So the AI training, which was basically a neural network in the simulator on the desktop, figuring out how to get up in those situations was a much faster and more effective way for this robot to learn as opposed to being manually taught how to learn. The science and engineering of these things are amazing. I mean, they've taught this little robot dog how to open a door. I mean, it has like a special arm when it's going to do that, but they've taught it how to open a door. What do they think are going to be the real world applications for something like this? We see videos from places like Boston Dynamics with their spot mini dogs doing things like opening doors. And it's very actually kind of scary or exciting, depending on how you feel about robotics. It, it's, a little, it's a little bit of both. It's like the raptor learning how to open the door or something. You, know, you never know what it's capable after it learns something. Absolutely. I'm still torn between, you know, is this robot dog cute or could it be scary? Um, But you asked about what are the real-world applications of something like this. And I asked the researcher who did this AI simulation programming for this robot in Switzerland. And he was saying that it could be useful in situations like, let's say you want to inspect an oil and gas facility. And that's the kind of thing that people use drones for now. But you could also imagine a four-legged dog like this that's very mobile and maybe very quick would be a good thing to send into like a disaster situation or to inspect some sort of industrial setting that could be possibly dangerous for humans. So they talk about real-world applications like that. But I also get the sense that when researchers are doing work like this now, they're just really kind of pushing the envelope to see what can we do with AI and machine learning to make more effective robots, robots that can do cooler things and learn faster. So it's almost like they're programming it now and working on it now. And I feel like the real world applications will be the thing that happens after the research. You know, I've seen a lot of different articles about what they can do and what the future holds for them. With the four legs, it does make it very nimble. It can tackle a bunch of different environments, steps, maybe maybe uneven terrains. There's all sorts of startups that are working on food delivery. Right now they have cute little robots with faces and big wheels on them. But I've also seen these robot dogs mentioned in something like that because it can navigate around people and uh, up and down the curbs and things like that. Right. And I think it's an exciting time for robotics and AI and, you know, autonomous vehicles. We see researchers using all these different robotics and autonomous technologies and AI to really push the field forward and make robots that can hopefully make our lives a little bit better as opposed to, you know, leading some sort of robot rebellion in the future. And the speed at which it's happening. I mean, I think that's why the simulation learning is so important on top of the normal neural networks and the artificial intelligence intelligence that we're currently working with, the simulation learning helps it go so much faster, so much cheaper. Right. And I talked to an expert at Carnegie Mellon University who works a lot on robots. And he said that what this team in Switzerland did was they made robot programming cheaper and more efficient. You know, he's saying that right now, if you want to program a robot to do something very complicated, like get up after a fall, you need to hire a talented programmer who's not only good at writing code, but also good at understanding how robots work. And so a human programs all those rules. But, you know, in this case, the robot learned through AI and the neural networks, as you said, on this desktop, how to do it. And so he said, basically, you know, before you kind of needed almost robot whisperers to program them. And now through AI and the simulation technique, the robot can learn on its own in the simulator how to do these complicated things. And then you just take those skills and transfer them over onto the physical bot. The videos are pretty cool. I recommend everybody go and check them out. It is kind of fun to see somebody kick over the robot dog and then it get back up. They've done other tests where they put this very same animal robot dog into a sewer in Switzerland so he can learn how to navigate in the dark and in, uh, you know, wet terrain. So it's very, very interesting. Rob Verger, assistant tech editor for Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.